Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to this month's Emerging Market Lens and Look Through podcast. I am your host, Damien Sassauer. And today, we are joined by Ms. Shamila Khan, Head of Emerging Markets and Asia-Pacific Fixed Income at UBS Asset Management Americas. Shamila, such a privilege to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks, Damien. Always a pleasure. Well, listen, Shamila, let's crack into it here. Many feel that market sentiment is transitioning from inflation to recession risk. In other words, a change in beta regime from inflation to growth. And I guess the first question I have for you is, how should we be positioning in such an environment? And more importantly, do we really believe the Fed can achieve that ever-elusive soft landing? Damien, my view throughout this year has been that the market is going to keep oscillating between three themes. The first is concerns about inflation. Second is concerns about U.S. recession. And the third is being excited about the prospects of soft landing in the U.S. And it doesn't mean that the market will spend exactly one third of the time in each <laughs> regime, but you're going to be in a very volatile situation where the market is going to be very data dependent and you know whatever the outlook looks like to be in these three regimes. And therefore, we rather not play the volatility game, but we want to be long carry. We believe that carry will actually be the outperformer this year. Fixed income yields look very attractive at this point in time. And if you're able to ride through the volatility that the market is going to be experiencing because of the uncertainty between these three regimes, uh, you will do well owning high-yielding bonds. So, Shamila, I'm so happy you're talking about, you know, the importance of carry and fixed income. I mean, if you look at, for example, emerging markets at, at the local level, right, um, you know, basically, if you look at just currencies, right, it's those high yielders, the Brazils, the Colombias, the Hungries that have all outperformed this year. And it's those low yielders, the uh, Japan's, the China's, um, Japan's not really an emerging market, Shamila, as you know, but, you know, it, it's it's those are the funding currencies. I guess the question I have for you, if indeed this is an environment where you believe EM carry is going to continue to outperform, what currencies should we be funding in? The high carry currencies, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's uh, really the high currency, uh, carry currencies like Brazil, Colombia, Chile, which and South Africa, which we think are quite attractive uh, for a variety of reasons, carry fundamentals. In many cases, the political risk in those countries was highly overstated, and that's also helped the performance of the currencies. Uh, but in addition to local currency, I just want to highlight that there is also very attractive carry in the hard currency emerging market universe, particularly in the sovereign space. And that's been much less of a theme this year. Um, most, um, I would say it's one of the most ignored sector, even though it is actually one of the best performing sectors in global fixed income. If you look at the emerging market high yield sovereign space in the distress category, and I'm not talking only about the names that have defaulted, but 
where a high risk of default was priced in earlier in the year, those countries have actually done extremely well. And they've done extremely well because from a policy perspective, they've done many things that are extremely positive and have really not been advertised as much. They've exhibited really high willingness pay by you know, either collapsing imports, doing structural reforms, fiscal prudence, removal of subsidies. And that has been complemented by tremendous support from multilateral agencies like the IMF, but also getting guarantees from a number of other institutions, you know, the blue bonds and the other uh, instruments that I think will continue to come out over the coming months to support these countries. In addition to that, even for countries that have defaulted are in the process of emerging from default, you are seeing basically a lot of um, uh, progress being made in terms of getting creditors uh, on the same page with respect to restructuring. And that will also be something that's going to continue to be supportive of the countries that are emerging out of default. Well, Shamil, I wonder if you could just educate our audience there, because, you know, I, I believe what you're talking about is Zambia, right? And the fact that, you know, the IMF was able to reach some sort of an impasse, you know, um, relative to some of the other bilateral creditors, we're thinking China here, and and some of the issues that have kind of held up, you know, all of the restructuring for a lot of these frontier economies. I'm wondering, is that the real catalyst why we've seen the El Salvador's, the Ecuador's, the Ghana's, the Senegal's, where we've seen spreads come in so significantly this year? Or is there something like you mentioned, fundamental going on there? So it's a bit of both, right? So you are seeing some progress on countries such as you mentioned, Zambia, Ghana, Sri Lanka, where there's progress being made in order to streamline the process of emerging out of default. But I think more significantly in the countries that have not defaulted, but they were trading with a very high probability of default with respect to the risk premium that was priced into their bonds, there you're actually seeing an improvement in policy making. Many emerging market countries have really used this crisis as an opportunity to pass difficult policies in their country, which is very positive from a fundamental perspective. And you know they're really exercising fiscal prudence. They're doing really difficult things domestically from a political perspective and exhibiting strong willingness to pay. And that is uh, something that is being supported by multilateral and bilateral creditors. And that is what has driven performance also in many of these countries. You know, you've mentioned El Salvador, you've mentioned Egypt, uh, you know, I would mention Egypt, Nigeria, many of these countries, I think, are do need to get some credit for the policies they put into place. So we're talking EM high yield sovereigns here, but I wonder if we could just build on that a little bit and talk about, you know, the corporate sector, right? I mean, you know, Chinese property specifically, right? It's a big portion of what we're seeing now in EM high yield and EM distressed, obviously. And, you know, I guess, is, is, is that a different animal altogether? I mean, we know that China just, you know, cut the triple R rate once again. Um, we know the problems that, you know, the economy is having with the property sector, with big tech, you name it. I mean, the dollar yuan is down 5.2% year to date with much of those losses coming in the last three months. Investors are exiting. What comes next, Shamila, for the Chinese economy? And as investors, should how should we be positioned, if at all? 
Uh, absolutely. That is a very important um, topic to discuss. And uh, I'd like to say a couple of things about the Chinese economy in general and then move to the property sector. So first of all, the market was overly optimistic about the Chinese reopening trade, right? And um, we didn't think that was realistic. The nature of the shutdowns in China was different versus the rest of the world, as were macro policies during that period, and therefore the reopening was likely to be different. In addition, China was going through a liquidity crisis in the real estate sector, and that is an important sector for the economy. Uh, it's important for the consumer, it's important for local government revenues, and a number of um, different sectors in the financial space had exposure to that sector as well. And therefore, all of these were significant drags on growth in the economy. Now, we believe that China could be at a do-whatever-it-takes moment. And when I say do-whatever-it-takes, I do not mean that they're going to stimulate the economy to a growth level of high single digits. What I mean is that they're going to try to stabilize growth and turn around investor and consumer sentiment. And they are, we believe, quite committed to that. And we have started to see signs of stimulus emerging, which is quite significant, and we think that's likely to continue going forward. On the property sector, what I would say is that what's being currently priced into privately owned real estate sector fixed income bonds is that not that they're just going to default and restructure, it's that they're just not going to survive. They're, they're yeah. being priced as companies that are just going to go out of business and I believe it was unrealistic when investors believed that none of these companies could ever default because they were systemic. And I believe it is unrealistic today to say that the vast majority of the sector is just not going to exist going forward. What I think is likely is that there will be a few companies that do not exist. They will. All of these companies are likely going to be smaller than they expected to be a couple of years ago, but the sector is still going to be significant for the economy. And I'm specifically talking about the privately owned real estate sector. Um, there was also this expectation that the government is going to bail out these companies. That was unrealistic because no government is expected to or is obligated to bail out privately owned companies. But we do think that the government is incentivized to make sure that this doesn't become a more systemic risk. And that's where we are today. And that's why we think that the Chinese government will be stimulating um, and will make sure that that stimulus goes to the real estate sector because that was the core of the problem. So it's funny because, you know, many people I speak to believe that, you know, we're moving into this multipolar world, one that's dom really dominated by the U.S. and China. And, and, you know, this is forcing both countries and companies uh, to take one side or the other. By countries, I'm talking, you know, Brazil and India, many of whom think that because they've maintained this sort of sense of neutrality between the two, they should command the premium, right? And we, that's reflected in performance of, of recent. And and on the company side, I mean, just look at what's going on with Apple or, or SK Hynix and some of the chip manufacturers, right? I mean, so I, I, my question for you really is, do you really believe, like others do, that these countries, these companies deserve a higher risk premium for sort of maintaining that neutrality or a sort of lower risk premium because they're right in the middle of it all and, you know, the market's going to force their hand one way or the other. 
I mean, I think the situation's a lot more nuanced, right? The reality is that there are two important superpowers in the world, the U.S. and China, um, and, you know, there is likely to be uh, headline risk around the two, relationship of these two countries. However, they are also very much interlinked in terms of uh, trade, in terms of um, holding debt uh, of um, uh, you know, China being one of the biggest holders of U.S. debt. So there are very strong links. I think con- com- countries are just diversifying their sources of revenues. And um, neutrality is something that allows them to do that. I don't really think that's going to be a major factor in determining the risk premium. I think uh, there are two very important economies in the world, and most companies and countries would want to be exposed to both of them. You know, Shamil, I'm really happy that you mentioned um, the importance of, you know, foreign uh, foreign nations, foreign entities holding, you know, holding U.S. treasuries and vice versa, the U.S. holding, you know, foreign foreign nation debt and what have you. Because, you know, we're in this point here where, if I'm not mistaken, if you just look at, you know, the major players in the U.S. treasury market looking back over the last, call it 10, 15, 20 years, it was the Fed, foreigners and banks who made up 75 percent of, you know, of, of treasury holdings. Now it's less than 50 percent, you know, so it's a far less uh, uh, inelastic sort of buyer base, so to speak. And a lot of people are talking about how, you know, with Fed runoff running at its current pace, it has the potential to really crowd out some of these other fixed income asset classes like emerging markets. And I'm curious, are you seeing or feeling any of that? I mean, I know primary market activity is still pretty robust in EM. I'm just curious to hear what you're seeing on the ground there. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It is interesting, right? There, the primary uh, activity is robust, though on a net basis, it's still negative net issuance, right? Because a lot of it is just refinancing of debt. Um, and frankly, the demand for uh, issuance has been very strong. And the new issue premium has not been quite significant. So that does indicate that despite what you see in the flow picture for emerging markets, there is demand and it's coming from a variety of sources. Uh, in addition to just fund flows, you know, you have to also understand that there is a significant amount of institutional flow into the emerging market asset class that has been supportive as well on an ongoing basis. And it's much harder to track from a flow perspective. Um, I do believe that the impact on emerging market in terms of flows is going to be more positive going forward as we do think that monetary policy of the Fed will have an impact on U.S. growth and the Fed will be able to cut rates going into next year. Um, And that will help flows to become more robust into funds, for example, in emerging markets and further supportive for emerging market performance. Um, So, yes, even with the negative flows and high interest rates in the U.S., you are still seeing the ability of many companies and countries in emerging market being able to issue and, you know, their issues to be oversubscribed. But I do think that will continue with uh, good performance for secondary levels as well, as we see some of the Fed uh, change in monetary policy playing out as you see signs of slowdown in the United States. Shamil, I'm happy you mentioned growth, right? Because, you know, I've, I've I've been doing this for, you know, nearly three decades. And, you know, as an emerging market guy, you know, we were always taught that um, you have this EMDM growth differential in the favor of emerging markets, you know, and, and certainly I think the last few years have given a lot of 
people pause as it relates to that narrative. And, you know, my question for you is, what do you really expect the next decade to look like for EM growth? I mean, do we believe that growth is going to run at a faster clip than developed markets? Do we believe that it's going to be on par? Or or is this whole EMDM growth narrative, has that ship, has, has that ship sailed? Yeah, no, look, EM does grow at a faster clip than developed markets in general. Uh, the question is, is that gap continuing to increase or is it going down or is it staying stagnant? And I think it really, the debate has to go beyond growth to the quality of growth. And that, I think, is going to be the key factor that determines emerging market performance because we've seen countries when they're growing very fast, it doesn't necessarily follow that they should be performing very well. So I do think that the quality of growth is very important. And the one important thing that I do want to point out, and this is where, you know, China's spillover into emerging market comes or, um, you know, just the prospect of flows come into emerging market is commodity prices. And I think we are in a different cycle than we have been in the previous decade. Um, the important thing here is that commodities now have a higher floor and virtually no form ceiling. Uh, the impact on supply due to the lack of investment that has gone into this sector pre-COVID has really led to um, that um, very firm floor on commodity prices. And uh, there's been steady demand coming from the investment uh, due to decarbonization. And that's sort of taken China a little bit in the background as far as uh, at least the downside on commodity prices. Uh, commodity prices were at their peak when China was experiencing a shutdown. And commodity prices are at a higher range even while we are having concerns about Chinese growth. That is an important factor. So imagine a world where we aren't concerned about growth uh, to the same extent in China, uh, where U.S. is in a soft landing or a slowdown, but not a significant recession, what would happen to commodity prices there? And there's definitely upside to commodity prices. And I do believe this is now structural, not just cyclical, simply because in previous cycles, when commodity prices would go high, investment would go into the sector. And supply would normalize and prices would go down. Now that investment is going in much more slowly for ESG reasons, and therefore the cycle is likely to be prolonged. So that means you are in a higher commodity price regime for a longer period of time, and that also has an impact on uh, emerging market flows. Well, I'll tell you, Shamilia, I mean, you're not the first one to be talking commodities here. I mean, this is, and, and, and believe me, we haven't been talking a lot about it since the super cycle burst in 2014. I wonder what other idiosyncratic stories in EM really catch your attention here? I mean, what are you and the team at UBS most focused on? Are you following some of these elections that are coming up in, in places like Argentina, Ecuador, Poland, uh, Mexico next year? I mean, what other opportunities really stand out to you? But the opportunities that stand out to us are the ones that the market doesn't like in general because they are misunderstanding the situation. Um, and there are a variety of these. Uh, I already mentioned there are countries that are trying to do the right thing, but the market is still pricing in a fairly high risk of default. 
El Salvador, Egypt, Nigeria were, um, you know, a few of those countries. And then obviously some countries that are going to benefit from these higher commodity prices. Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, is a region, uh, broadly speaking, that benefits, of course, you have Angola, Nigeria, again, Ecuador. Uh, and then there are also these countries where the political risk is getting overstated. As you correctly mentioned, there are elections in Argentina and Ecuador. And uh, what I would say here is that there are three things to keep in mind with elections. Um, do not pay attention to polls. They are invariably wrong. And that is one thing we've tried to stick to. Uh, the market always gets excited on polls and is virtually always wrong. Uh, second is we do not like to pay attention to election rhetoric. There is a difference in what politicians tend to say before getting elected and what they actually experience one they, once they assume power and they understand the reality of the situation. So that is also, I think, an important thing to keep in mind when analyzing these countries pre-election. And then finally, what we try to actually focus on is what does the government need to do to stabilize an economy? No one wants to get elected and cause an economic crisis. And that's the key part in countries like Argentina and Ecuador. It really isn't relevant to us who gets elected and what they're saying currently before elections. What is more important to us is in both these situations, the new government will try to stabilize the situation and the policy mix, well, in the case of Argentina, is likely to be better at least than the previous policy mix. And in the case of Ecuador, they also need to attract investment. So what we're trying to focus on is the outcome, not the process. So Shamila, you know, we're getting a little long in the tooth here. I've just got one last question before I lose you. I mean, what do you feel today? is the pain trade in global financial markets. I mean, are we talking, you know, lower equities, higher U.S. Treasury yields, a stronger dollar, you know, an oil price spike? I mean, what do you think the market's not quite prepared for at this point in time? I think um, the soft landing trade in the U.S. is getting more or less priced in. So the pain trade would be if the growth number continue to um, not be similar to what we've seen so far and actually start indicating a slowdown. In the U.S., the Fed certainly has a lot of room to accommodate um, a slowdown in the United States. However, at the same time, if inflation is higher than uh, they want it to be, then they may be restricted in using some of their firepower. So that really would be the pain trade where your growth is slowing down, and yes, you will see some easing from the Fed, but not as much as the market may like and as much as they would do ordinarily if uh, there wasn't uh, concerns about inflation. Shamila, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and views with us here today. Shamila Khan, Head of Emerging Market in Asia Pacific Fixed Income at UBS Asset Management Americas, and thank you to our audience of ever-enduring, always committed emerging market enthusiasts for your time and continued interest. Keep well, stay safe, and keep moving forward. 